when people start to really, really get past the initial struggle with their stage one recovery, where they're struggling with their physical craving or that mm -hmm. desire to drink or use, and they get way past it. Now they're living their life and they're sponsoring other people and helping other people understand this. That's what shows up, man, is these moments. And when I was first exposed to Bill's letter, the way that I could really, really relate is to see his reaction to when people didn't do what he wanted them to do. Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Welcome. I'm Tom Rutledge. Uh, here we are with our wonderful uh, group of uh, our producer, uh, Patrick Newman, and uh, with me, as always, Dr. Uh, Dr. Dr. Alan Berger. God, I'm glad you remembered my name. I got it. I got Lately, it. Lately, I'm not so sure my name. I'm, I'm so I'm oriented with this <laughs> hey listen you you have been through a lot lately and 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 i'm sure as we i know we're gonna we're gonna move into uh looking uh, at, at emotional sobriety through the lens of your of your brand new book which is a wonderful book and uh, but i'm sure you're gonna have some some stories of of uh down boots on the ground practice of emotional sobriety uh during the during this giant move that you've made You've heard this before, Tom, and I'm sure it's been true in your life. Sometimes I think I write for myself. Oh, absolutely. Myself yeah. Certain principles because this move and some of the things leading to the move and, you know, the challenges I've faced in the last, I'd say, four months have given me a lot of opportunity to practice these principles that we're going to be talking about here in the, in the, in this show and in in the upcoming shows and you know the good news is is that this stuff works <laughs> i'm yes. still here yes, I, I i'm i'm still you know i haven't done this perfectly and i don't expect that anymore of myself except at certain moments <laughs> but mm -hmm. but you know, I can say, and this is, you know, I got to share in a meeting out here. So I've been out in Pennsylvania now for about two and a half weeks, three weeks. I guess today is three weeks, actually, uh, three weeks in a day or two days. And uh, a week ago on Saturday, um, I shared at an AA meeting at Harmony Hollow Ranch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You told us about that. Sounds and like a beautiful place. An amazing experience. And, you know, I, I shared, you know, some of the some of the things I've shared in my book, especially the story about Maddie, which we'll get into later on. It's mm -hmm. I love it when I discover something that's not just theoretical, but mm -hmm. that is practical mm -hmm. and meaning that it has relevance to my life and how I live my life. And that's the thing that I love about what we've been exploring now for through this whole COVID thing is that 
there's opportunities here, right? Incredible opportunities here for us to take that next step in our recovery, that next step in our life where we're now being, I'm now being able to cope with things that before would have baffled me, that yep. before would have just overwhelmed me and I would have gotten just frustrated and angry and, you know, and made the situation worse. I was good at that. I got to tell you that if, if, if you want, needed a situation to get to be made worse than it was for someone to come along and exacerbate it. I know I, the guy to call. It's, it's right. guy to call. I mean, I was proficient at that stuff, man. It was, it was amazing how I could go step in there and I could just take a bad situation and make it worse in a hot second. And the great thing about emotional sobriety that I've been discovering or that I've discovered and that we've been discovering and in the Thursday night meeting that we've been having now for some time is that this is a way of contributing in a very different way to what's going on around us is to really be a part in and I heard this in the rooms for a long time but it never made as much sense as it makes now is to be a part of the solution not the problem or a part of the yeah problem. yeah and and the practical part and and another word that comes to my mind too is is specific it's very specific it's it's the it's in the devil the you know, the devil's in the details they say so i think that's where the solutions are too and that's that's where we work and and i want to i want to i want to tell a brief bit about my emotional sobriety from from yesterday the 4th of july uh because i want to thank you for this because because of of the work you're doing and the work that you have me doing. I've, I've, I did something last night that I have never, I haven't done since, uh, I mean, since back way back in the 1900s. It's, um, and that is that I am a, I won't go into details about this today, but it's, it's like, I am an, I am avidly against the noise of, of fireworks as animal abuse. I have, I have made a stand on that. I ranted, I have raved, I have tried to do smart things like, like try to get some attention to that. But on the 4th of July, I, Didi said to me the other day when we were going to, when she knew we were going to be recording this and uh, this episode, and she said, she said, well, you're going to talk about the 4th of July, right? And I said, well, the 4th of July doesn't necessarily have anything to do with emotional sobriety. And she says, it does for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and so because Didi, Didi has a way of just calling me out with very simple ways, but, but it's like, I have for the longest time because, because of, uh, you know, uh, I have cussed, I have screamed into the backyard and down at our barn and insulted everybody who's firing off fireworks. I live in rural Tennessee where every, it's not, we're talking, we're not talking about just organized fireworks displays. We're talking about everybody, everybody is blowing stuff up for days. And I knew the worst of it was last night, 4th of July. And I made a deal with myself that, and, and it's not that yelling is not, is not an option to, to release stuff that we live out in the middle of nowhere. So that's a good thing I could do that. But what I know about myself is the more I do that, the angrier I get in this particular case, or sometimes letting off that steam is a good thing. And sometimes it basically just, just revs me up. And I decided I was going to practice acceptance. I was going to, I was, and I made up a little story that said that there are, there are so many uh, explosions that are going to happen tonight and that every one that goes off means one less. Oh. And, uh, uh, and so I'm going to I'm going to inwardly express relief 
with each one, each one that get not necessarily, I didn't track them all, but each one that gets to me, I'm going to make a shift. I'm going to go from, from the, the frustration and the rage to relief. And, and I, I consciously made that shift. And of course, I mean, they were, you know, as we talk about all the time, they were both there. The rage didn't go anywhere. It's right, right there. But I felt so much better through the, through the course of the night. And and when I didn't even realize when uh, I was taking the dog out late and, and, and I said, well, the fireworks may still be going on too. And, she, to, and I was worried about taking the dog out and Dee, Dee said, no, no, they stopped. And I went, really? <laughs> and so anyway, that, that, that may seem like a small thing for some people. It's a huge thing for me. And, and it is about the details. It's about the specifics. And I also would say it's also about the fact that I think to a large extent, we write, we writing, our writing is, is us talking to ourselves and asking people if they would like to eavesdrop on our conversations. They may and hope that they can get something from it. Yeah, that's right. No, I love it. I love it. And look, what you did there and I think it's really worth underscoring this and highlighting it, is that you shifted your perspective in how you looked at it. Yep. You know, the situation didn't change. It's just the way you looked at it changed. And and your shift, that shift you had, mm -hmm. created a huge difference. And that a lot of times we're going to be finding it as we discuss right. Emotional sobriety is how even a small 5% shift in your consciousness in a way of looking at it can have a 100% impact on your experience. Right. I mean, it's amazing how, how much we get from so little with emotional sobriety. And that's the way I love to say it. We get so much from so little because these little shifts are showing something that we talked about last time, this flexibility. And, and I know for me, that flexibility is something I didn't have. I was so fixed in the way I approached things. And this is a great example, but there's lots of other things my wife could tell you about in our marriage, you know, is, is the idea that, that the, 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 the more intense, intensely I feel about something, the more fixed I was in my position. Yes. which is also, by the way, the exact opposite of what we need to be. You know, I mean, we need to hear that politicians in the world need to hear that the more the, the more intensely we are fixed, the, the more we need to explore the possibilities of flexibility and what you always say, looking for new possibilities. That's right. That's right. No, it's so true. It's so true. And, you, you know, I, I talk to you about tennis sometimes because I, mm -hmm. I love tennis and and I got certified as a sports counselor many years ago. And we used to say, you, we when you play you need 100% commitment but no attachment 100% commitment to what you're doing and how you're playing out there but you cannot be attached to it you've got to let it go and that and like you said is that flexibility of okay look i missed that shot you know letting go of this idea i'm going to make 100% of my shots you go out on the tennis court with that you're not going to last long I mean, you know, it's like more more people lose matches than win matches. I mean, it's proven that you're going to win more points by the other guy losing them than by hitting outright winners. Right. Well, I would imagine, and I and I played very played very little little tennis, but did for for a short time when I was younger, and and uh, and, and I would imagine understanding because I I read Tim Galloway's book, which oh, was the first, which was the was the first. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was the first self help book I ever read, because it, 
it's, the first it's, book on the intrapsychic process. Uh, it's, 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 I think about everything I do every day in my life in terms of the in, internal, but, but that, that, that inner voice, you know, and how, and, and he also taught the basic technique, which is you don't, you don't get rid of the inner voice. You simply, you simply, you know, it's, some, it's the psychology of mantra, you, you know, you know, bounce hit was my favorite exercise yeah. in that book. It's like, instead of thinking, so instead of thinking about the, the last shot that I missed or how my feet are feeling or, or where, you know, when I'm, where I am on the court, you know, all I'm doing is as I, when I hit the ball, I say the word hit. And, w- and when it comes back and bounces on my side of the court, I say bounce. And, and, and it's like, and, and that holds my attention. And it's, it's like, it was amazing because it's, and, and it kept me in the moment. I know I had no idea that I was, that I was reading a self-help book. You know, I thought I was just trying to beat Bill Powell, who was really good at tennis and, 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 and was a very arrogant guy about tennis, nice guy otherwise, but, but I, but I read it just to beat him and did once only once, but, uh, but that's it. It's, it's, we have to shift it. And it's like, and we don't have to shift it. And that, that's the other thing is it's almost arbitrary how we shift it. You know, I made up this story yesterday. You know, there's truth to the story because the fireworks were in the end, but it's like, it's like the idea that there's, there's a set amount that are going to happen and each one means less. It's like, I, I, I mean, I truly just pulled that out of the air or out of my something. And, uh, but, but, it, and it might, and you know, and by the way, I would say to anybody listening, if you do this, if you're experimenting with this though, cause this is not the first time I've tried to, 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 to change things with this perspective change shift. It's like, if you, it's, it's exactly like the, the missing the tennis ball. If you, if you miss it, if it doesn't work, that's okay. Try the exact same thing again, make a change, try, try something entirely different. One of the things we want to be teaching about emotional sobriety is that flexibility is, is one of the primary principles. I think it is. You're, you're more the one who has the thoughts organized. Does that make sense? Listen, I, I, you know, I, I told you that one of the things after you write a book, you realize, well, what would I have added to that book that wasn't right. And I'll right. tell you, one of the things, even though I do talk about flexibility a lot and the importance of it, but I think it's it's a term that needs to be repeated over and over and over again because it, it's it's central to this whole process about getting unstuck. So, you know, let let's look at that a little bit. And we want to walk through the book, the book and the twelve essential insights for emotional sobriety. And you know, in the first chapter, we talk about you know getting unstuck. But let's look at both. And let me just say this: I love that you start this book there. It's like, like it's very. And I love just the, the simple chapter one. I'm looking at it right now, Be, being stuck and getting unstuck. First of all, I love the simplicity of that. And it's like, and I think so much. You know, you we we were talking just before we we uh, started recording today, and and you were saying you want to go over some general ideas about uh, emotional sobriety. And I'm going like, and what I said to you is like, I don't, you know, I don't know that, that there's a better one, a better concept than being unstuck, getting unstuck. Cause I think that's what, that, that's what we, that's what this offers. That's what emotional sobriety offers. Unstuck. What, and what do you get instead of stuck? You get, you get flexibility. We're talking about that. And you, and the one we, you talk about a lot, which is freedom. That's right. That's right. And in, in the one perspective here that's in, we go to this point about cognitive flexibility or, or flexibility in general, 
is this is this concept that being stuck does not mean something's wrong in your recovery. No. And I just want to emphasize this so so strongly because so many of us, you know, and I can relate back to this myself. I think, my God, I'm working a program. I shouldn't have the problems I'm having. That somehow the program was supposed to be this magical elixir that now that I've taken it, it's going to somehow be this panacea. It's going to cure everything. And what I realized was, well, it can be that, but there's a step in between that process is using this program to deal with being stuck and to expect myself to be stuck because what that reveals are my working points. So that's what I love about this is that we're now in recovery, clear-headed enough, sober enough, clear thinking enough to start to see, my God, let me take a look at where I'm stuck right now. Let me see what's going on. What is happening here? How come you know, th- this is going down for me without putting that judgment on it. Um, well, th- and this, I hadn't thought about this before, but this is something that I, that I point out to clients a lot. And, and uh, it's a perfect place to put it, I think, in, th- in our discussion, and then we can return to it. But one of the things to remember is that, that those inner, inner committee members, those saboteurs, those negative voices, they not only come with us, but, but they read everything we read and they go to every therapy session we go to. And it's like, and they use all this information. So one of the things that certainly I think happens to, has happened to me, sounds like it has to you, is that, you know, my, my should monster be, begins to pretend to be part of the team. You know, and so and so the idea is he puts on he puts on the the lab coat, maybe throws a stethoscope around his neck to look really good, and you know, and comes in offering you know this. And and what he's doing is he's gonna he's gonna read what you wrote in your book. And, and if, if somebody's listening to this, and you have if you have a strong inner critic, you're gonna read what Alan has written in the book. And if you're aware that somebody's telling you, oh, this is pointing out how you're doing it all wrong, it's like I promise you that's. That's not your authentic self. That's not that's not the self we're, we're talking to when we're talking about recovery. And 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 know that every one of us has this. We have to keep. We have to remain vigilant about maintaining who who in our head is talking. And so when that critic is talking, it doesn't. Ma- it can use anything to beat us up. It doesn't matter. That's right. In the book, uh, you use an expression defining recovery in a way that excludes us from it, which I thought was very. Uh, interesting and could yes. you uh kind of unpack that a little bit well it, it's it, you know i started to make some reference to it a moment ago so if if i like to think of it this way patrick is if i take the dirty shoe off one foot and just put it on the other foot it's still a dirty shoe even though it's on my other foot so if i come into recovery expecting the same things from myself that i expected before but now because i have the 12 steps in my tool bag that I'm going to pull off what I couldn't pull off before, I'm missing the boat because those old ideas, which we hear that phrase all the time in the rooms, until we let go of our old ideas, the result is nil. Well, I didn't understand what that meant completely. I mean, I understood it in terms of, at that point, my simplistic approach to recovery will my old idea was that if you got a problem, pick up a drink, right? That's going to make me feel better. So I applied it very simplistically to that idea. 
I didn't generalize that to my life, that my God, my old ideas include all of the way that I thought before. Not that all of it was so all wrong, but that I needed to have a curiosity that, you know, that maybe there's another way of approaching life. Maybe there's another way of thinking about this. The, the idea that maybe my expectations are a part of the problem, I'll tell you, that did not become starkly revealed to me until much later on. You know, for some reason, I was still highly reactive, you know, incredibly reactive because I still thought that these ideas I had about how life was supposed to be, how I was supposed to be, you know, the should monster had his field day you know, in terms of what was going right. On. And things were supposed to be get, getting better. Right. Because, because now, now you had finally wised up and we're doing, doing something positive, healthy, focused on that kind of stuff. So of course things should be getting better now. Yes, that's right. And they did it initially in terms of the physical part of it. I felt so much better because I wasn't putting all this toxin into my body. Right, because it really is a bad idea to drink like we drank. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, you know, so I started to get better physically, and for a while that, that did create kind of a honeymoon effect. Mm -hmm. But then life happened, is the way I like to think about it. Mm -hmm. Then my some of my expectations, like I had to, I'll never forget. So so when I first got sober, I, I you guys have probably heard parts of the story before, I was at the Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station. And I was the third Marine admitted to the program, and after I had about I'd say maybe 45, 60 days clean, I was, came, I was invited to come on board to be a counselor. Well, the, I was the third Marine admitted. My buddy Bill was the second Marine to be admitted. So they also asked Bill to come on board because Bill and I were very enthusiastic about our recovery. So we're now counselors over at this step, some days a step ahead of the guys we were counseling, some days a step behind them. But one of the things that would happen is on a weekly basis, we'd sit down and we'd have like a group therapy where we would deal with our, our feelings towards each other. And I'll never forget, Bill came in, he says, you know, I got, I got a grievance to ear with you. I go, well, what is it, man? You know, and I'm, I'm like, oh, my God, what is it? You know, it's like, oh, this is going to be bad. He goes, have you noticed that every time that we go ride our bikes, because our former transportation was two <laughs> speed bicycles at that point in time. Every time we ride our bikes, you have to be in the front. And I go, no, I didn't. I got, obviously you noticed that, but I sure didn't notice it. He says, why do you have to be number one all the time, Alan? And it goes, oh my God, man, I didn't see this. It was so habitual on my part that I get on it, you know, and it, it was a part of the thing that was driving me. I always had to be number one. I had to be in the lead. I had to know. I had to, all this other nonsense that I put on my, you know, on, on part of my should demands on myself. You, you put it on yourself. Yeah. I exactly. totally put it on myself. Nobody expected that of me. And Bill says, you know, I don't mind you taking the lead sometimes, but you know, sometimes that I want to. And then I says, well, I, I appreciate that. And then my little cocky ass said, how come you haven't talked to me? How come you haven't talked about this to me before? And then he looked at something. He says, because I don't like conflict. I don't like confronting people on stuff. And we looked at something together. But it was, and I love those days. As much as I 
dreaded being confronted. I also loved being confronted because it was pulling some of these blind spots. It was exposing some of these blind spots I had that I just wasn't aware of these things. And now the awarenesses were starting to, I like to say, you're talking about fireworks. I call the awarenesses popping off. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Aha, uh-huh. aha. Uh-huh. They were these little kind of tiny insight explosions is the way I've referred Well, it's also it's also what you just did with your hand on your chest, which is is even if you're just listening, you pro- people probably heard it. It was it was and so one of the things, those of those of us who have needed boundaries, we've needed somebody it's like this is a this is an actually experience of a power greater than ourselves. Now, the power greater than yourself is not your friend, but but it is caring about something bigger. It's like caring about the process. And it's like, you know, we, you know, I heard a long time ago, somebody who does family stuff says children need parents to be benevolent powers greater than themselves. They don't need to be, they don't need to be more powerful than the parent. And and if the parent is more powerful, they don't need them to be, to be aggressive or uh, malicious in any way. And so, but we need that to me, that comes into higher power so much is when you care about something bigger, and all of this, and, and and you're right. It's a mixed. It's a mixed thing because we dread it. I hate it. I hate that. I agree with you. I hate that confrontation thing. That was that was so uh, scary. And uh, but it was like I now know how much good it did me every step of the way. Yeah. When somebody when I when I was when I was and it was you know it was good. To, it was good to be with people who would be willing to be that honest with me. But ultimately, too, we credit where credit is due. That's we were doing that because we were investing in something bigger. Yes, that's right. You know, we were we were always talking about giving our power away in codependency. It's like this is this is choosing to give our power to something about that includes us. It's not to something or somebody else, but it includes us. But it's bigger than us. That's right. I, I love the way you're saying that um, because before there was nothing bigger than us. <laughs> I, no, I, I can relate to that. It's like it scared and it scared the shit out of us. Basically, we didn't we didn't consciously necessarily know that. But it's like it it, it was not a good thing. It's like, I, you know, I, I you know, I'm I'm the one who's the most powerful person here. You know, and I wasn't necessarily thinking those exact thoughts, but I was because I could manipulate. I could do all the stuff. I could get away with anything. And, you know, and, and I remember when, you know, long before I ever got sober, the, some, I'll tell some stories sometime down the line about some of the, the some of the early people in my life, uh, long before I got sober, who actually saw that, saw through that and confronted it and how absolutely pissed off I was about that because they were talking about not re- meeting expectations. They were not reading the rule book, man. They, they weren't supposed to be saying the truth to me. Yeah, that's right. But you were at a place with your friend where it felt good. Well, that's right. Well, we were that we were committed to that process, which is, I think, really cool that I had the good fortune of being in a place that was so because this program was just beginning in the Marine Corps. We were it was like the program was discovering what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Just like we were discovering what we were going to be, and what oh, oh, it's beautiful. About just beginning, yeah. Somebody comes in and they're sober for a few days, and they make them the counselor. It's like <laughs> that's beautiful. It's like I mean, talk about flexibility. Yeah. No, listen. And I was on the Marine Corps boxing team at that point. 
So I, I was, it was a, it was a, a, in some many ways, a very welcomed shift in my temporary duty station because I was just, I had been on the boxing team for about two months and I wasn't bad. I wasn't the worst guy on the team. I wasn't the best guy on the team. I was learning a lot. And there's some guys that really took me under the wing on the boxing team. And, but I'll tell you, man, I mean, the Marine Corps had a high degree of physical training already. This boxing team pumped it up. I mean, we were running between eight and 10 miles a day. We were in the gym in the afternoon, hitting bags for two hours. We were sparring. I mean, you know, you were on a team, but you weren't just sitting around eating bonbons. That's for darn sure. But it was really, it was great to join the the staff over at the counseling center because they really didn't have, we became the first counselors. They had a staff sergeant in charge who was in the program, but he was busy administrating the program. So me and Bill, and then eventually this guy, Larry Fry, we were the three counselors at the center. And we'd run a groups. It was great, man. We ran groups. We didn't know what to these groups but you know what we're applying is everything that we were learning you know we'd 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 hear it and then we'd share it we'd hear it and we'd share it and so it was like this stuff had immediate application because we didn't have anything (laughs) oh that's that's so true alan the idea that yeah that there was no delay in whatever we learned because there was there was no reservoir in what we learned it was it it was just we just whatever yeah i did i did that so often when i was in therapy because whatever my therapist would do with me i would start doing with my clients immediately you know (laughs) whatever tom would say to me i'd bring back to the counseling center (laughs) whatever i'd hear in a meeting i'd share we've talked about um Getting stuck in recovery doesn't mean something's wrong with the program. Uh, usually it's the opposite. And through the character of Roger in the first chapter of the book, um, he's lamenting his unhappiness with the program, asking himself, asking you what constitutes a great program. And um, I think like the the thesis of his problem is like, I, I still feel like shit. You know, I've been through all this. I've cleaned up my act. Mm-hmm. And uh why do I feel like shit and what needs to change? And I, so, you know, it has something to do with expectation, right? Is what. Well, that's saying. what Roger came to. And, and let me just say this, you know, as, as people are out there reading this book, they're going to hear, you know, I really bring in a lot of examples from my work with people and from my own personal experience in life. All the examples I bring in, I, tr- I do try to, I go to great lengths to try to hide the identity. In fact, almost every client in, you know, except Brian was able to pull the covers off of that one. And we'll get to that. And, we'll, yeah. and I thought when we hit that part of the book that we'll invite Brian to join us. That day. Oh, absolutely. It's you know, a- we got to invite Brian in for that one. But, mm-hmm. but you know, they're all composites. So these are a, a result of many different clinical experiences I have that I try to put together into an image that picks up a theme. You know, everybody's unique, I think, that walks into my office, but there are some common themes that we have. It's like the stuff that we talk about with these expectations, right? Expectations are resentments under construction, right? I mean, we talk about these things. Well, I see that a lot. I see a lot of people coming in the program that are working, quote, what they call a good program, meaning they're sponsoring people. And, you know, when I was in Hermosa Beach, where my office was before COVID hit and before I moved to Pennsylvania, you know, I had been in that South Bay recovery community for 30 years. 
So I had clients that came to see me at many different stages in the recovery, early recovery, you know, now well into recovery, middle stages of recovery, later recovery and stuff like that. So I got the good fortune of being able to experience people as they changed and people's lives changed. The one thing that didn't change was getting hung up on their resentments because people couldn't see that this thing that I'm upset about has to do with this unenforceable rule that I have. So many people thought, I'll never forget this one guy, he comes to mind and I'll just share it. Um, he, he, he and his uh, wife were in recovery together. And he had this idea that they should be having sex at least three times a week. And if they didn't have sex three times a week, something was wrong with the relationship. But more specifically, something was wrong with his wife. And so he'd come in and what brought him into therapy was, is, you know, she's got a problem. She doesn't want to have sex three times a week. So obviously, yes, she has a sexual problem. He couldn't in any way fathom that maybe the problem had nothing to do with her lack of appetite, but his expectation and how he was approaching this whole thing. This guy had 10 years of recovery, Patrick. He had been in recovery 10 years. He could not see that the way that he was approaching his wife and the expectation and then how angry he would get with her when she wouldn't have sex with him and how bad she he'd make her feel. And then what she started to do was just surface him. She'd have sex, but she wouldn't be into it. And then his thing was, what's wrong? Why aren't you into this? <laughs> I mean, and it was like so the problem got so compounded because he couldn't see at all that there was nothing wrong with him wanting to be close to his wife. Had he called, went to her and says, you know, God, you know, you're so darn sexy tonight. And I'm, I really love you and I'd like to be closer tonight. I'd like to make love tonight. And if there was room for her to say no, and then for them to deal with it, he could have a greater intimacy with her. But when she'd say no, he'd get mad at her. He'd get angry. He'd storm out of the bedroom, slam the door, go sleep on the couch and stuff. And then she's sitting in there because of her issues, feeling bad, like she did something wrong and what's wrong with her. And then she started to do the negative arrogance that obviously he's upset. Something's wrong with me. I should want to have sex more. I mean, it just got into a death spiral for them. But that's the kind of stuff that when people start to really, really get past the initial struggle with their stage one recovery, where they're struggling with their physical craving or that mm -hmm. desire to drink or use, and they get way past it. Now they're living their life and they're sponsoring other people and helping other people understand this. That's what shows up, man, is these moments in our relationships with people is really where these expectations are going to be most starkly mm -hmm. running. They're going to oh, be- they're, they're, they're the mirrors. They're how we see yeah, ourselves. They are. We, yeah. yeah. So that's a great question, Patrick. It really is, because that's where, to me, that's when I related, look, listen, or let me say it another way. When I looked, when I was first exposed to Bill's letter, or re-exposed, I was exposed mm -hmm. to it back in 71, but it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I, mm -hmm. I, it's, there was you, were, you weren't ready. You weren't ready for that. Ready yeah. to, I didn't have the consciousness that could mm -hmm. really, really assimilate what Bill was saying. 
But when I got re-exposed to it after around 20 years or so, right around the time that Bill was, was writing about this stuff, I could, the, the way that I could really, really relate is to see his reaction to when people didn't do what he wanted them to do. Well, this is an exciting topic. You know, I'm so glad we're going to start exploring this stuff. And I love that we're going to we're going to use your book as a guide to to go through this stuff. And it's um, um, and 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 may and maybe it will help me stay on track. Well, well, I don't (laughs) might be too much of an expectation. I I will try. If you're listening. Get the book if you don't have it already mm-hmm. and read with us. Mm-hmm. And look, please, if you've got questions about a particular chapter, mm-hmm. submit them to Tom mm-hmm. or to me or to Patrick. Yeah. We will read them on the air. We will do our best to answer those questions. I love, I love, by the way, I just love, I, lo- I love it when we get responses and questions from, from <laughs> comments and responses from people and love to, love to, to, to bounce off of those to, because to me, that's, you know, one of my things is I'm always saying and is, you know, join the conversation. And I mean, obviously everybody can't just be in this conversation, but, but that's the way you can. I mean, we like doing this. We want to be able to do this and we know we you want people to hear it. Yeah. There's a lot of ways you can, you you can spend your time and and if you choose to share it with us we are grateful for that mm-hmm. so we'll continue this on we're going to continue we'll talk a little bit more about about chapter one and start to get into chapter two next time but patrick did you have any final thought before we wrap up today's show yeah you know well i as a preview for next week um i i'd like to get a little further into how our long neglected true self grates against our false self because that's also one of the central mechanisms yes. of emotional sobriety, right? I imagine. That, that's a great sentence, isn't it? It grates mm-hmm. again. Our, our... Yeah, I love that one. Yes. That's a Vince Hyman sentence. It's a Vince special. <laughs> that's a Vince. That I, I can tell you guys exactly what's said, because when it sounds like that, that's a Vince Hyman sentence. I love that, because I remember at, at your, uh, if you if you remember the, uh, at your uh, virtual release party, yeah, I, 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 one of the pieces I read from your book, I, I, I complimented the exact, a certain sentence, and I said, this is a beautiful sentence, and I just, as a writer, I love the sentence, and I, and I said, just sort of off the cuff, you know, now, of course, if, if Vince, the editor, is responsible for this sentence, I mean, you, you can tell me that, and of course, then afterwards, you said, yeah, he was. It's like... <laughs> Well, that's the gift about having a great editor, isn't oh, it? Oh, no kidding. Editing has made every, I mean, people, people, I, I tell people when they're starting out right, if you're listening to this and you're starting out right, do not, whatever you do, do not become a, what I call a premature prima donna. It's like, you know, oh, don't, you don't mess with my work. It's like, no, find, find somebody who, who can really get in there with you and help you make it better. It's, it's wonderful. Vince has helped me become a much better writer. Mm-hmm by being open to his input and feedback. And, and it's just a remarkable, but that sentence is a great example of it, right? Yeah, and it's good. such an important one, Patrick. So let's start with that at our next show. Absolutely. And uh, you know, just one last thing is um, uh, you describe emotional sobriety as recoveries, or maybe Bill Wilson described it as, a, as recoveries, next frontier, mm-hmm. new frontier, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but it's, um, you can see how this process is never going to run out of gas because it's about you plumbing the emotional depths and the things that don't necessarily have to do with addiction, you know, in its uh, concrete form, but more about like all of the uh, 
yeah, yeah. Uh, the, all the laundry you've got to do well, listen, on a regular that, basis. I, I think that that's a great observation mm -hmm. on your part. And, and Bill even said that he felt that these issues are what led him, contributed to him becoming an alcoholic in the first place because he did not know how to cope with what was going on in life. And the alcohol gave him freedom from his lack of ability to cope. And I say that all the time is that I do think that a lot of us were pursuing emotional freedom because that's what we're all hoping for and wanting in our life is to be free from all of this. The problem is, is that the way that we've sought that had, did not create freedom, it further imprisoned us. Okay. And that's, that is, that is, that is the, the moment, if you will, that's the, the moment that of awakening that a lot of us have is my God, it wasn't just the alcohol. That wasn't the, the problem. It was big part of the problem. We're not minimizing that, but there's other things going on and putting a plug in the jug, an important first step, no question about it, but it's not enough. It creates an illusion of, of the solution. Oh, that's well said. Everybody hear that? An illusion of the solution. Mm -hmm. The rhymester. Rhyming. It's rhyming. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm excited about this. And, and Patrick, and I love your comments about this because you're now reading the book for the first time. And I'm loving it. And uh, I think it's going to be great to uh, run through it over these uh, this next series of weeks and months. It's going to be great. So we'll see everybody next week. Until next time. Till next time. Tinge your life. Tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with. Then with glass in hand and children on one knee. Bring some stories. Bring your stories back to me. It ain't a crime to be a human. Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing Will entertain me like nobody else So here's to us, my old friends Until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again With glass in hand and children on me Bring some stories Bring your story back to me.